manner, in generic tradition, uh, there's a lot of emphasis placed on the special position of, of the devotees. And uh, sometimes the flip side is that a lot of devotees think that they don't really have to follow a lot of the rules and regulations, especially pertaining to the social side of, of life. Uh, like, for example, devotees think that Varnashram has really nothing to offer for them, or you know, sometimes we see that sannyasis live like royalty. They engage in a lot of activities which are not really, and this is, you know, <laughs> not a criticism in, in your direction by any means, just a general observation that um, we see a lot of sannyasis engage in very mundane activities, management, and managing finances and getting deeply entangled in all that. And uh, the general idea among the devotees very often is that well, this is okay because we're devotees. And uh, what is your take on, on this? Well, you're right in stating that there's a lot of emphasis on the importance of devotees in our tradition. I think that's how you began. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, of course, has, has emphasized this. I, I believe that it's it's something that is also strongly emphasized in the Ramanuja Sampradaya, Vaishnava Seva. If we look at Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's teaching, as um, explained by Jiva Goswami, then we find that there are elements in Mahaprabhu's teaching that are found in all of the other four sampradayas, Vaishnava sampradayas. Sometimes it's said that Mahaprabhu took two elements from each of those four sampradayas, like Vaishnava Seva and I forget what else from Ramanuja sampradaya, deity worship from Madhva sampradaya. Sometimes it's said just the opposite. I once mentioned this point to a disciple of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, that Mahaprabhu took two points from each sampradaya. He said, no, no, no. Each sampradaya took two points from Mahaprabhu's teaching and thereby gained credibility. <laughs> so, at any rate, Vaishnava Seva is one of those points, points of emphasis. It's there throughout, of course. Nobody can deny it. It's clear in, in Bhagavatam and Padma Purana and so forth, Gita and everywhere. But... Uh, we do emphasize it, and I think you know the the, uh, the theology of that. That uh, that. Right, right. But let me just say something about it in general. Theologically speaking, then the devotee is one in whom Krishna's swarup shakti has is fully manifest, and the swarup shakti of Krishna is his own nature, his own internal energy. So he interacts with devotees through the medium of this Sarup Shakti. So that Shakti is one with him and different from him. And the devotees as embodiments of that Sarup Shakti are more important to us than Krishna. Why? Because that embodiment of Sarup Shakti is an embodiment of love of Krishna. And the ideal 
And the sadhya, the goal of Gaudi Vaishnavism is what? It's not Krishna, but it's love of Krishna. And of course, loving Krishna means getting Krishna also. So you see it's one and different. But we should emphasize the point that the goal is not to attain Krishna, but to attain love of Krishna. And of course, by attaining love of Krishna, then you capture Krishna. So the devotees are more important to us, ultimately, than Krishna, because they embody, personify, a particular type of love of Krishna that will be of interest to us, and their model is thus very practical and helpful for us. That's what we want to attain. We want to become devotees. We want to become lovers of Krishna. So, understandably, the devotee is emphasized, in one sense, more than Krishna. And in many ways we can talk about it. We would, I often say, why do we bow down before the deity? Because the devotee told us, this is what you should do, and this is God here. And so where is Krishna? You see, he's in the heart of the devotee. There's no meaning to Krishna without his devotee. Is there any meaning to Yashoda Nandana without Yashoda? No. Radhanath without Radha? No. Their love causes reality to appear like that. It causes reality to be purchased by them and become their son, their lover, their friend, who they can push around and so forth. So, for good reason, many good reasons. Again, just in a practical sense, the devotee personifies the teaching and gives us a, a chance to see it in practice, so it's very helpful for us. Without that, we'd be lost. So for good reason, there's emphasis on the uh, of Seva. Now, at the same time, it's a bit of a leap then to say I'm a devotee just because I'm on the path. And other people, devotees more advanced than us, may say that we are devotees, but it's not very becoming for us to say that we are devotees. In fact, the term... Kanishta Adhikari, you have all heard the term Kanishta Adhikari, means a neophyte devotee. It's kind of a generous term because it's, a, it's almost an oxymoron. Oxymoron means that the two things just don't go together at all. To be another way of saying this uh, Kanishta Adhikari is Prakrita Bhakta, to put it in perspective for you. Prakrita here means materialistic, so materialistic devotee. They don't... <laughs> The two really don't go together. How can you be materialistic and be a devotee? But you can because devotees who are not materialistic are generous and so they extend their sense of what it means to be a devotee to others. They look at us in, with a very generous outlook and if we have a little faith, then they call us devotees. Rupa Goswami says, if you have a little faith, then we consider you a devotee. That's the beginning of the path. Adho Shraddha. Nityananda Prabhu says he's giving the holy name and you have to have a little faith. But that's true and, and in this way, Gaudiya Vaishnavism is, can be widespread because to awaken faith in Krishna is, is not so, so difficult. Not so easy, but it's not so difficult either. I mean, Krishna's attractive and the philosophy is, 
is is a well-reasoned philosophy and a well well-reasoned theology, and it's very beautiful and charming. As far as uh, theistic philosophies go, it can keep pace with with any and and with atheistic philosophies as well. As far as arguments go, it has the added plus of being more charming than anything else. I think that's very objective, actually. And so, if you know that in theory and and if you personify it to some extent, then you can spread that kind of initial faith. And then people who have that, we call them devotees. But there's another stage in bhakti also where this faith is again talked about. When we speak of nishta, you all familiar with the term? Nishta means to be fixed, and, it, and it's sometimes translated as firm faith. So it's affirming of the faith. It's, there's initial faith, and initial faith comes through a certain type of sadhusanga, through sukriti, created by devotees, which we get knowingly or unknowingly by being in their association and seeing the deity and chanting the name and so forth. Whether we believe it or not, these things have an effect, and over time they, they surface in the form of shraddha, faith. So that's through a kind of general sadhusanga, and then after we get that faith, then we deliberately associate with devotees. And in the context of deliberately associating with devotees, then we find a devotee who really inspires us. And so we find our guru. And then from the guru we learn the practices, specific practices, be tailored perhaps to each individual. And then... Engaging in those practices, bhajana kriya, then unwanted things, of course, come out. And as these unwanted things are retired, basically it means the influence of rajaguna and tamaguna, lust and greed. And as these things are retired, one comes to nishta. And as I said, nishta is sometimes spoken of as firm. It just means, literally, it means fixed, it means firm, but we often qualify it further as firm faith. And it, interestingly enough, it is spoken of by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in terms of eligibility, adhikar. Eligibility to tread the path of bhakti is what? What makes you eligible to tread the path of bhakti? Shraddha. Shraddha. We're already talking about it. If you get that faith, then, then you can get involved, Right? But when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in Shikshastakam speaks about eligibility, he does it in the third verse of Shikshastakam. If we study that verse, we can see he's talking about nishta. He's talking about a code of behavior. Beginning is, there's no talk of code of behavior. There's just believe in Krishna and have faith and chant heart. Chant and be happy. But Mahaprabhu says, if you want to chant in such a way, that you will attain prem. Let me show you what that is now. And he says what? Trinadapi sunichena tarodapi sahishtana amanina manadena kirtaniya sadahari. Bhaktisiddhanta Sastitaku says this verse is about eligibility for bhakti. So how will we understand it? Because eligibility is faith. And here Mahaprabhu is saying eligibility is you have to do all these things. You have to be humble like a blade of grass, tolerant like a tree. You have to be prideless, egoless. Expect no honor for yourself give honor to others, and in this way then you can chant Hare Krishna constantly. So this is 
again, it's about faith, but about firm faith. And it's about the kind of devotion that will actually, if put in place, bring you prem. So it's about eligibility on another level. And unless we attain that level, or unless, I should say, unless we really have a focus on that, in the context of going to the highest peak, if we have a focus on, you know, if you have a, have a focus on going to the moon, ultimately, to do that first you have to focus on getting out of the Earth's atmosphere and into space, right? So this nishta is kind of like an interim goal. And the behavioral standards that Mahaprabhu is speaking of there are those that we should aspire for. He ends the second verse of Shikshastakam by saying, Durdaivam ihadani nanuraga. Durdaivam means, in one sense it means misbehavior. He says, Harinam is very merciful. There are many names, Krishna's come and so on. And there are no rules or chanting. And, but he said, because of my misfortune, because of my anarthas, because of my offenses, because of my misbehavior, Durdaivam, I have no, no rag, no attachment, no love for the name. And he ends with that on the second verse, and then he speaks about good behavior. So we should, in the very least, as I say, have this third verse as our goal. Kabirash Goswami said, Hearken, he said, listen to what I say. Take this verse that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was given and string it on a garland of the holy name and put it around your neck. Pay attention to this, he said. Mahaprabhu only said ten sentences that we know of. I mean, Kaviraj Goswami has paraphrased him in so many places. Mahaprabhu said this, and when he's doing the narrative of Chaitanya Charitamrita and so forth. But the things that he said, or that let's say that he wrote, there are only ten verses, the eight of Shikshastakam and two others. And of all of those ten verses, this third verse of Shikshastakam has been spoken about more than anything that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said by the Guru Parampara in all lineages of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Very important verse. And really, in a sense, it's about being a devotee. Yes, more generously, you're a devotee if you have faith, but if you don't conduct yourself in terms of the behavioral standards that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has mandated, or if you're not aspiring for them, consciously, then it would be rather uh, unbecoming, as I say, to boldly and proudly declare, I'm a devotee, and this and that and the other thing don't apply to me. The fact of the matter is, if you arrive at this stage, then many things don't apply to you. As much as this is about, this stage is about retiring the influence of Rajagun and Tamagun, practically it's about retiring the influence of karma. It's like extinguishing Baba Mahadavagani. When Mahabharata said that, he's speaking about, in the first verse, he's speaking about this third verse. This is one of the effects of Namsan Kirtan. It's like Baba Mahadavagani means a great conflagration, like a forest fire. Baba means here existence, the, the great forest fire of material existence. 
In this stage that Mahaprabhu was talking about, this standard of nishta, he's saying effectively, in this stage the fire's out, there's still some smoke. But the fire's out. The fire of material... So if the fire of material existence is out, even if some smoke remains, then you have a real devotee because he's not materialistic or she's not materialistic. Do you understand? Prakrita bhakti means materialistic devotee. It's almost like they don't go together. It's the, really the generosity of bhakti who comes to us through devotees, in whose heart she appears and then comes to us through them, who are generous, that uh, this idea of Kanishtadikari comes. It's the generosity of bhakti. I mean, we don't, I don't want to say that they're not devotees, that all of us Kanishtas are not devotees. We are, but we should think of it in this way, that it's, it's really generous to be calling me a devotee. I won't be as generous with myself. I'll be generous with others, but not with myself in this regard. That would be very proud to think like that. We should think, what is a devotee? It's a big thing. And we're talking about nishtha, and we're ready to run out the door. It's practically. And that's just what you have to get to to go there. Yet that's just getting out of the Earth's atmosphere, starting to get out of the Earth's atmosphere. In that state, you've now got the kind of rockets that you need. You're still not even quite out of the atmosphere, but you've got the rockets that you need to get there. Theoretically, on paper, it all works, and we'll go for it. We're ready to lift off now. We're not worried. We're sure we're going to make it. But there's still some distance to go. So I don't think that it's good that um, if devotees have an attitude like this without attaining this stage and or really consciously aspiring for it, and if they do, if they are, and if they do attain it, then they won't talk like that either. So I think it's rather... Um, unbecoming just even to say, well, I'm a devotee and these things don't apply to me. There may be things that don't apply to us even in lower stages, that's true. But this standard of conduct really does apply to us as an ideal. And if devotees aspire for that, then I, I don't think that um, some of the things that you perceive as being unbecoming or inappropriate, will um, many of them won't be there. Now, Having said that, some of the things you mention, in particular, perhaps would be worth discussing. You mentioned Varnashram. You said devotees say that doesn't apply to us, we're devotees. And then you mentioned sannyasis, living like enjoyers and being involved in pounds, shillings, and pence, dollars and cents, and all types of things. So... With, re with regard to Varnashram, perhaps we should address that first. What Varnashram is about, essentially, is about living in this world with appropriate balance. To be a balanced, socially integrated, psychologically inter integrated, religious person. That's what Varnashram is about. And the idea behind it is that if you want to leap up and touch the stars, go very high in, in the sky of your spiritual prospect, you would be well to do so by jumping with two feet on the ground first, rather than trying to jump with just one foot on the ground and being off balance. This is the idea. When we develop as a human being, there's two types of development 
that I believe that one would we could say is horizontal development and the other is vertical development. Horizontal development is, is like psychological and social integration, realizing that there are other people in the world. You know, when a child is born, he or she doesn't know there's anybody else. She thinks it's only me. And gradually she, she starts to hopefully grow up normally and overcome the, the narcissism that's inherent in infancy. Narcissism means like very self-centered and you don't know that there, you really don't realize that there are other people and you don't act that way. It's not nice to be around such people. So you're supposed to grow and realize that there are other people and they have individual spaces and desires and, and so forth. So Varnashram is a system for helping to create that kind of balance, psychological balance, social balance and integration and, and so forth. It's human development, development of the human potential in a religious context. And the beauty of it in one sense is that it does it in a religious context, so it posits a goal that is transcendent. And that's what really fuels it. It gives it importance and value, ultimate value, because it has a goal that transcends itself. It gives meaning to it. It gives meaning, for example, to sattva, which is virtue, over Rajas or Thomas. Because placed next to one another, without a transcendent goal, you can't really say one is better than the other. The value of sattva is that in living a life of virtue, it gives you a glimpse of a higher goal, of moksha, let's say, and in Mahaprabhu's teaching of prem. And then this then gives value to a life of virtue over a life of Rajas or Thomas. And, and if Rajas and Thomas are brought in contact with virtue, it gives them value also, ultimate value that can be harnessed and taken advantage of and so forth. So the value in this sense, like I say, of the Varnashram system, what does Bhagavatam say? Svanustitasya dharmasya, sangsudhi haritoshna. What's that verse? Svanustitasya dharmasya, vishvaksenu katasuya, notpadayadyadiratim shramayeva hikevalam. Vishvaksenu katasuya, notpadayadyadiratim. What does ratim mean? Rati. Rati. Love. Bhava. It says this system is only as good as it serves to facilitate rati, developing rati. And but this is Bhagavatam. And, so, and the implication is, if it doesn't help, then forget it. It has no value. To the extent that it does help, then it has value. So it may be useful. This is the implication of that verse. It may not be useful. It is possible to jump from one on one leg and go up. It's, you might fall down and land, you know, on your butt, but it's possible. But the general system is it's better to stand on two feet and be materially balanced and then try to jump up and touch the stars. But what happens, besides the normal kind of general system recommended in the Shastra, is that devotees, real devotees, like our Prabhupada, they move about in the world and they create, they awaken the Shraddha, which gives people eligibility to inquire about Brahman, Brahma Jignasu, Rasa Jignasu, all these things, even when they don't even have, they aren't even standing on one leg, practically, as far as being in, in balance in the material world. And so, <laughs> then they, what do they do? Then they chant Hare Krishna, and they're, you know, a mess in many respects also materially speaking. 
And so, you know, this is the generosity of bhakti, and it's something you complain about, but something you can't complain too much about, because bhakti was generous to you too, and all kinds of people join, and they're not all really well thought out, they're not all really very balanced, and and all of their association you can't always take advantage of, and sometimes they do crazy things. Sometimes they make offenses too. Depends on the background that people come to bhakti from. That has something to do with often how quickly, to what extent they will advance, they'll make progress. So the Varnashram has value as much as it facilitates attaining rati. And so any system of horizontal development is essentially in a pursuit of what Varnashram is about. Now, obviously, modern pop psychology has no, no idea of attaining rati and, and so on and so forth, but it's about living a life in this world in balance, let's say. We have a right to say that has absolutely no value whatsoever, as I'm explaining, if it doesn't facilitate attaining rati. But if it does facilitate bringing people into balance, then we could, in a dynamic way, incorporate such things into helping devotees to progress horizontally with a view to you know, build a tall, vertical bhakti building. You, know, you have to have a good foundation to go very high. And that's generally the, the truth. To get that high as Goloka, you have to have a pretty good foundation because although you might start with a, without a good foundation, it's possible by good association and so forth, without that in place, oftentimes then it takes a real long time for that building to go up. And, and if you start putting bricks up without the foundation in place, then bricks can also fall down and so forth. So over the long haul, we see that hmm, this kind of thing has has value as long as, as I say, it's, we don't do it, horizontal development, and confuse it with vertical development, actual ego-effacing spiritual development of uh, love of Krishna. Ego-effacing, of course, is essential to loving Krishna. So... If someone says, as you mentioned, that Varnashram doesn't apply to us, there is some scope for that in a classic sense to fully erect a system of Varnashram would be, would be pretty, I mean, I'm being generous, pretty difficult. Who's going to be the king? And, <laughs> I mean, in worldwide and, and so on and so forth. So as much as Prabhupada would emphasize something like that, as he did sometimes... I think you have to look at it. It probably was a very pragmatic person. I mean, he had to be to do what he did. Very practical. In other words, he would go down one road, and if it wasn't working, he'd back up and go down another road. He knew where to go, and he was determined to get there. And so whatever, in whatever way he started to go that he found that wasn't fruitful, then he would back off from I mean, he started to marry his disciples. He married them and oversaw that, and then he saw that wasn't going anywhere. He didn't want to be involved in it anymore because they were changing, swapping, whatever, you know, partners and all that kind of thing. So he backed off on that, you know. He didn't say that they shouldn't get married, but he didn't get personally involved anymore. And you know, there's, there are many examples of how he started to do one thing and saw, hmm, that's, I'm not going to continue down that route. Let's go. Book distribution, for example, which, of course, I was involved in. When he first heard that they're putting on wigs and secular clothes and going out and Kirtananaswamy reported to him that they're again becoming hippies, Prabhupada, and he wrote a long letter and so Prabhupada wrote back this has to stop immediately. 
stop this immediately. And we were in Los Angeles, and Carunder read us the letter. You know, here we, we, we had devised this system of, like, we were selling so many more books by going incognito. And, for example, you couldn't go to the Los Angeles airport and sell books legally, so we were going illegally and smuggling in the books and disguising ourselves and so forth and so on. So Kirtanan Swami's take on it was that we were again becoming hippies, we were giving up the devotional dress and so forth. So Prabhupada was alarmed and he wrote a long letter. So we had to sit with Karana and think, how are we going to talk to Prabhupada, tell him what's really going on here and how, you know, what's in it respectfully and so forth with respect to Kirtanan Swami and with respect to Gurudev, of course, as well. And so we fashioned a letter and sent it to Prabhupada and, you know, then he changed. So then he even wrote about it in Bhagavatam. He wrote about it in Chaitanya Charitamrita. He tried to find some precedent, you know. Narada Muni is coming disguised to preach Prahlad, and so our devotees are also going disguised. And they, <laughs> this kind of thing. So he was very pragmatic. And so we have to be very pragmatic also. More than one way to enter a house. So you can try to go in the front front door. Those of you who are older will know that one. <laughs> if, if you can try to go in the front door, but if you can't, you know, go in the back door. If you can't, go in the window. If you can't, get a ladder. I mean, uh, a devotee invited me to stay at his house in San Francisco on my way down here, and he wasn't going to be there so that I could spend the night and to take the early plane because we're a few hours from San Francisco. When we got to get in the gate, the keys that he made were new and they didn't work. We couldn't get in the iron gate. We had all these bags and there we were standing on the street in San Francisco. So we tried one thing or another and then we climbed over the gate. Vernishtigas climbed up over and there. So anyway... This is the kind of person you have to be. Devotees like this. Devotee, he or she is, I'm going to get there somehow or other. I know it's by my Gurudev's grace, but I'll have to be a little expert, a little exercise, a little genius, and be a little tenacious also. I'll tell you, this is required. <laughs> That's my experience. There will be many obstacles. Come. Internal obstacles from your own mind, from your own health, from other people from of all people, other devotees, from senior devotees, <laughs> it's from everywhere obstacles will come. You have to have your eye fixed on the goal. You know the story in Mahabharata of the Pandavas and the training of uh, who was it, Drona, trained them in archery. So the five Pandavas came and there was a bird, a decoy of a bird in a tree that he put there. So he said, come and take aim and shoot the bird. I'll teach you how to to be a bowman, an archer. So one came and he said, okay, now take aim. What do you see? He said, I see the sky. I see the, the, the tree. I see the branches. I see the bird. I see the eye of the bird. The idea was to hit the eye of the bird. So after he said, this is what I see, then Drona said, okay, sit down, dismissed. Next one came, what do you see? I see the tree, the branches, the bird, the eye, okay, sit. he didn't see the sky, okay, sit down. Next one, what do you see? I see the, the branches, the bird, the eye of the bird, sit down. Next one, what do you see? I see the bird, I see the eye of the bird, sit down. Arjun came, what do you see? I see the eye of the bird. Anything else? No. You see the sky? No. You see the tree? No. Branches? No. Okay, shoot. So this idea, we have to be like this. We have to be focused on the goal. When I joined Prabhupada, I don't know why, but just as I was joining, I said to myself, this thing is too great, too great of a thing. And I said, I make a commitment now. 
to myself, even if everybody else leaves this, I'm never leaving this. I mean, who would have, you know, it's kind of a crazy thing to say when you're joining. Now it's not. <laughs> These days, we, but at that time, we didn't have any, at that time, you know, nobody had left yet, <laughs> practically. So we have to have that kind of um, determination. We have to go on. And even others who were close with us and dear with us who were not, not going forward, we may have to leave them behind. There's that other story of Mahabharata too, of Yudhisthira and company going to the Himalayas and so forth. And one fell behind and Draupadi fell and another. He went on. Anyway, I mean, can you imagine how dear the Pandavas were to one? One's falling behind, Draupadi's falling. Kept going. Can't look back except to get encouragement to go forward, not to contemplate returning. This sound will take us there. Anavrati Shabdat, Anavrati Shabdat, Krishnanam, of no return. So this nishta that I'm talking about from Mahaprabhu's third verse, it's about this. And so Prabhupada was very pragmatic and, well, he had a, you know, kind of a spiritual genius about himself and, and determination to do what he wanted to do. And we should, in our own small way, for delivering ourself by his grace, we should have that, we may not be able to deliver the whole world, but have that kind of determination, that kind of pragmatism also. And so, you know, Varnashram, you know, you're saying some devotees say that doesn't apply to them, and, and some devotees say, you know, it's the most important thing in the world, is we have to establish Varnashram. And unless we do that, you know, we're not going to take over the world and Prophet wanted it. And people can quote things from here and there, you know, just to, to support it and so forth. And this brings up another point that's important. I was visiting with Vatsal yesterday, briefly, Vatsal Prabhu from the community here. And we were just chatting and I asked him, you know, I say, I see you're developing the temple there. And uh, then he brought up the point, he said, yeah, but, you know, we need authority here. This isn't a democracy. That's the thing. Everything has to be from top down. There has to be authority. And some devotees, they want democracy, you know. But Prabhupada didn't want democracy. And there may there was one, you know, letter instance where Prabhupada let the devotees vote. But that's just one instance, you know, and Prabhupada did that. And we can't take it out of context and we can't make a whole religion out of that that Prabhupada said it was okay to have democracy. Some exception is, is there and so forth. So immediately I replied to his point that what you say is, is actually true and this is an autocratic system and Krishna is the supreme autocrat. He does whatever he wants and we have to do what he says. But I added to that that the way in which Krishna rules and commands everything is by affection. This is what Krishna is. Krishna is the personification of affection and love by charm. Krishna is not four-headed Brahma ruling in, in that way with reasoning or um, Shastric rules. He's not ruling as, as Shiva does with renunciation and, and uh, commanding Vairagya's compelling. No, but it's about affection and charm, playing a flute. So Authority there must be, but it must be charming. And so the Prophet said everything else should also run by love and trust. So if the authority establishes himself or herself by loving, by giving, then we'll trust. And then whatever they say, we'll accept. We say it doesn't matter, Prophet said it, or something like that, if he can't support it here or there or elsewhere. But another point 
came out in that, relevant to our discussion. And that is that, I told the devotees afterwards, that somebody had circulated a paper in all your mailboxes with a letter from Prabhupada, that Prabhupada said this about Sridhar Maharaj and so forth. And I said, just see, what Saul is confirming what I've been saying to you, that in his own example, he's doing this. He said, you cannot just take one thing that Prabhupada said somewhere at some time without giving it a context and then make a whole policy out of it. Do you follow? You have to look at why he said it, where, what time, what he said afterwards, what he said before that. In any given instance, we have to have a comprehensive look at things, at Gaudiya Vaishnavism, at scripture. Take Bhagavatam. What's the meaning of Srimad Bhagavatam? There's a way to find out the meaning. There's a system for that. I mean, besides hearing from our guru and so forth. The book itself, it says what it's about in the beginning, Satyam Param Dimahi. It's about meditation on Satyam Param, the supreme absolute truth. And it's telling us in that first that that supreme absolute truth is Krishna. Bhamanamo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Satyam Param Dimahi. The same thing is invoked in the middle of the Bhagavatam, same thing is invoked at the end of Bhagavatam. By knowing what it says in the beginning, or by knowing what it says in the end, by knowing what it says repeatedly throughout, what it says by logic, there's a system like this to understand what a book is about. It's said that Srimad Bhagavatam speaks to us in different ways, which makes it the complete in itself a scripture. Vedas speak to us like a king and just order, do this, do that, no explanation. Said that the Puranas speak to us like a friend, a little easier to listen to. And then there's the poet, the Kavya, Sahitya, which speaks to us through poetry and, and so forth. And it's said in the Puranas that Bhagavatam speaks to us in all three of these ways. So some places it's speaking poetically when it says some of those things that seem like, how could a guy have 8,000 heads and 10 million arms and... If you study the book carefully, and you study it in Guru Parampara, then you can understand, oh, and you know what these types of language are that are all used, applied in the Bhagavatam. And you can, oh, this is where he's speaking poetically. In, in all of this, poetically, giving an order, speaking like a friend, he's making a particular point. You have to understand what the point of the Bhagavatam is. It's not a history book. Neither is a book on social you know, norms and while it speaks in some places about those things, it's really about something else, and it's only invoking those things and sounding, giving some history and whatnot for a purpose to establish that Krishna is the supreme absolute truth and he should be meditated upon constantly. And constant meditation means what? How can you do constant meditation? Yeah, but meditation, you know, requires certain things to be in place. Jayam sada paribhagunam abhishtadoham tiyatasbadam shivranichinutam sharanyam vrittartiham pranatapala plavabdipotam bandhi mahapurushate charnadavinam This is coming in the 11th skanda of Bhagavatam. It's explaining satyam param dimahi. It's talking about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Jayam sada, jayam dimahi, same idea, meditation. Sada means constantly. What did Mahaprabhu say? Nam namakari bahuda nijasarva shakti statrapita niyamita smarane nakala. Very nice. He's talking about nam kirtan. He says God has many names. You can chant them anywhere, anytime, any place. 
He says, Smarane Nakala. What does Smarane mean? It means remember. He's talking about Kirtan, but he's using the word Smarnam, which is meditation. What does Bhakti Sananda Sarasri Thakur say? Kirtana Prabhavi Smarana Swabhave. By Kirtan, by expressing Kirtan, Kirtana Prabhavi Smarana Swabhave. Naturally, Swabhav, naturally and spontaneously, meditation will come. Bhagavatam to Sanatana Goswami has practically merged the two, Kirtanam and Smarnam. And in the Shikshastakam, in second verse, Mahabrabhu has done the same thing. He's talking about Kirtan. But as you can remember this name, it means you can meditate, you can do Nam, Smarnam, like Japa, anytime, anywhere, any place, even when sleeping, when walking. Very generous. So, this is what Bhagavatam is about. But again, to understand the whole thing, and why it says this here and, and that there, and not take things out of context and make a new religion out of it in the name of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and so forth, this is important. We can use some guidance in this respect and some education how to approach it, how to have a comprehensive understanding. So yes, in some places it says Varnashram is important. In some places it says Mahaprabhu has rejected Varnashram and Prabhupada emphasized Varnashram and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu rejected it. So all these things, this requires some thinking. Don't be shy to think. That's telling you, Bhagavatam is saying, the teaching is saying, you know, I want to engage your intellect also. I want that also. This is the better part of, isn't it called, valor? Proper discrimination. And this is just about discrimination. It's not only about critical thinking. It is about critical thinking. One should be critical of oneself. Think critically. As much as it is about discrimination, using your intellect, applying it spiritually, engaging it spiritually in Shastra Yukti, that means scriptural reasoning, understanding what the scripture is saying, what is its purport, putting all these things together. That's why Vedanta Sutra is called Nyaya Shastra, because it's using logic to make sense out of all these Upanishadic statements. One says this, one says that, what? We all seem to be going in different directions, and Vedanta Sutra comes to try to use some logic to pull it all together and say, it's all saying one thing. Nam Dharma. This is Mahaprabhu's understanding of Vedanta. This is Bhagavatam's understanding of Vedanta. It ends with Yatra Sankirtanam. Do Sankirtan. This is the last verse of Srimad Bhagavatam. Bhagavatam asks us, use your intelligence. Prabhupada asked us, use your intelligence. He said, y'all, young boys and girls, use your Western intelligence to spread Krishna consciousness. Understanding what it is and sorting these kind of things out. So, so there may be some place to say, Varnashram doesn't apply for us. We're devotees. And there may be some place to say, but yes, but wait a minute, we need some, what we find practically is, and this of course was an emphasis of Thakur Bhakti, we know, theoretically, Vaishnava Diksha, to be initiated as a Vaishnava, means that you've got a ticket you know, to outer space. You've got a ticket to the moon. That's valuable. I've got a ticket to the moon. You've got to get on the ship, you know, the spaceship, and, and go there, of course, but you've got a ticket to the moon. Most people don't have a ticket. They can't afford it. It's expensive to fly to the moon. So if you've got a ticket to the moon, then you can say, hey, you know, I'm moving to the moon. So I don't really live here on Earth. I'm here now, but I'm 
that's I got a ticket to the moon. People think, wow, this is lucky guy's got a ticket to the moon. He's going to live on the moon. You still have some things to do, but this is Vaishnav Diksha, so it takes us beyond Varnashram. Varnashram is the world. Mahaprabhu says, I don't want, I'm not interested in Dharma, Artha, Kama, and Moksha in this verse. Fourth verse of Shikshastakam. That's the world. You understand? That is the world. Dharma, Artha, Kama, and Moksha means Sattva, Rajas, and Tamas. The world is about desire, desiring to get something pleasure, desire to avoid something unpleasurable, and these desires manifest in a fourfold way, threefold way, I should say. Desire to be virtuous, desire to have power, security, and desire for pleasure. That means Sattvagun, Rajagun, Tamaguna. And that means Dharma, Artha, and Kama. You understand? Dharma means virtuous life. Artha means to get power, make material progress, to build my house, to become, get a better job. Not sense gratification just for its sake alone. That's delusion. That's tamagun. But with some other purpose of progress behind it. Mahaprabhu is not dhanam, not dhanam, not sundarim. Bhaktivinoda says dhanam here means not only artha, but the wealth of religion also. So dharma is included. And sundarim means beautiful. So it means, oh, the desire for a relationship, these kind of things. And it indicates the principal sensual desire, attraction between the sexes. Dharma, artha, kama. So kama. And kovitam. Kovitam also means knowledge. And in that sense, it may also, ultimate knowledge is moksha. It's pointing to moksha. And Mahaprabhu underscores that by saying, Janmani, Janmani, I don't want to take birth. I don't care to be free from birth and death. This is a really extraordinary idea. He says, Ishwar, Jagadishwar. He's using two names of God. What does Ishwar mean? What does Jagadishwar mean? These are names of God that refer to the Paramatma. Who's Paramatma? The oversoul of the world. He's saying goodbye to the God of the world. He's maturing in Ruchi in this verse. And Bhagwan Nanda Tanuja, who he speaks about in the next verse, is taking his seat in his heart, and the Paramatma is displaced. You ever seen the picture of Hanuman tearing apart his heart and Sita Rama in there? He also displaced the Paramatma. Get out. My Ishtadevata will come in my heart. This happens in the stage of Asakti. Mahaprabhu was leaving the world, saying farewell. I'm not governed by by that Dharma, Artha, Kama, which is all Varnashram. There's a place for leaving that behind. Bhaktivinoda Thakur seeing that the very thing in one sense that you're talking about, that people become devotees and then they think, I'm a devotee. This is the Paramhamsa Marg. I'm just going to chant the holy name and that's all I've got to do. But, but really they've got other things they've got to do by the force of their desires and their conditioning. And there are other things to do to deal with those so that you can chant constantly. And if you don't, then it can be a problem and the Sampradaya can start to look pretty unbecoming with people saying, I'm a devotee, I need to follow Varnashram. I'm a sannyasi. 
You're a grihasta. How come you have more money than me? You're a grihasta. I'm a sannyasi. Why do you have more money than me? You're keeping money for just enjoying your senses. You're, all your money should be given to me. <laughs> Interesting way of looking at it. <laughs> I'm not saying that you have to. Everyone has to strictly follow the varnashram. I, as I said it's pretty hard to, to do that. And Adhikar for bhakti does relieve one of much of that. But as much as we are really treading the path of bhakti, then we are free from those types of obligations. As much as we are making advancement vertically then we don't have to be concerned about the horizontal development in our life. So I think there's some place for horizontal development in a dynamic kind of sense of Varnashram, practically speaking, for all devotees, but not in a way that you lose sight in the horizontal development becomes misconstrued to be synonymous with vertical development. But when vertical development really starts to come, Nishta and Ruchi, Nishta means Madhyamadikari. Ruchi means really Uttamadikari, beginning of Uttamadikari. Shreya Kairaba Chandrika Bhutta. He's Shreya, Shreyas. He's got one effect from Bhakti, Kleshagni. Kleshagni means the Klesha. There's miseries from karma, destroyed. And Subhada, auspicious. That person doing that Ruchi, life becomes auspicious. People like him or her. There's four or five symptoms of this auspiciousness given by Rupa Goswami. All these are manifest in the Ruchi Bhakta. Getting something from the other side. That person has can say, he won't say, but he could say, I don't have to worry about horizontal development. I'm, I'm not concerned with that. It won't be very good for him to say that to most devotees without qualifying it. But you may need it. Bhakti Vinod, as I said, was concerned about that. Therefore, he coined the term Daivavarnashram. He meant some system of horizontal development is appropriate for Gaudiya Vaishnavas who are treading the Paramhamsamarg. So that we don't have this kind of a imbalance that's unbecoming in the Sampradaya, where somebody says, I'm a devotee, I can do whatever I want. I'm on the Paramhamsamarg. You follow? So he took from the 11th canto of Bhagavatam inside some verse and thought of the system and Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthitakur pushed in that direction and so forth. He had his moths and Prabhupada was following that too. But really, if you see the progression of that, what Bhaktisiddhanta thought of and how Bhaktisiddhanta tried to put it in place and how Prabhupada talked about it's kind of a working model where pragmatism is, is and the goal has to be in mind and we'll adjust it accordingly and so forth. So it's, it's, that's required for most devotees. And as far as the sannyasis go and so forth, well, that's a whole other, you know, it's related. But one thing about the sannyas in Gaudiya Vaishnavism is that it's a sham. It began with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was a sannyasi. Nityananda Prabhu broke his danda, threw it away. He said, this is a, you're, you're the, the supreme enjoyer and you're going to be carrying a danda. Means, the danda means rod of chastisement. By the way, it's not really for beating other people over the head as much as it's about beating yourself over the head, punishing yourself in a, you know, psychologically balanced way. (laughs) Punishing words, punishing your mind, punishing your body by not allowing them to do things that are not related to Krishna. And if you do that, the people will want to listen to you automatically. You won't have to hit them over the head with with your dunda. 
beat them into supremacy. They don't want to listen to you naturally. You will have established yourself in a natural way as an authority. So, at the same time, this sannyasis is somewhat, somewhat of a sham and somewhat of a artificial idea that Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsapati Thakur implemented for practical reasons. It's pragmatic. His idea was all these Advaitans are out there as sannyasis and so forth, and people don't think that Gaudi Vaishnavism doesn't have the dignity it deserves right now, so we'll make sannyasis, and we'll show that our Gaudi people are as renounced as Advaitans and and so forth, and, and we won't imitate Paramhamsas who can just sit and chant. We'll go out everywhere and preach and do kirtan and so forth. He had a whole idea about that. So it does, in his extended idea of kirtan, leave some scope for sannyasis doing things that are not in concert with the sannyasu Upanishad, like you know wearing tree bark and these kind of things. So you know there's some scope for those sannyasis being less than classical and in a romantic sense of sannyas that you you hear in the scriptures. But at the same time, after all, Rupa Goswami coined the phrase yukta vairagya. Yukta vairagya means that using those things from the world that you're not attached to in Krishna service. So if those sannyasis use all kind of things in the world, Prabhupada also wrote checks. Prabhupada also had bank accounts in a number of places. And Prabhupada wanted to know how much was in those bank accounts. And he was on, on top of that. And, and so if he opened a bank, Prabhupada opened a bank in the Krishna Balaram temple. <laughs> I was there. For the, maybe some of you were there for that. And that's where Prabhupada told his joke. You know the joke? It's a money joke. It's, you, know, it's, you know, it's Prabhupada's humor. It comes from, you know. Anyway, he said, the joke was, what was it? He said, a uh, man went to the bank and gave his money because he heard that money attracts money. So he put it, his rupee on the counter and he said, you know, I put my rupee here and the teller said, thank you, and took it. And, and the man said, wait a minute, I heard that money attracts money, so you got a lot of money, so I brought my rupee here and I thought by putting it here that I would attract your money. And the teller said, well, money does attract money, but my money attracted your money. <laughs> it's Prabhupada's joke. So, <laughs> at any rate, you know, and there was Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasri Thakur riding in the motor car and wearing shoes, and classically the sannyasis don't wear shoes, they don't ride in a vehicle, they walk everywhere, and so forth. So, he really had a kind of dynamic idea about it. But, he also had the core idea in place, that they would actually be detached and renounced. Yukta vairagya means you got vairagya by bhakti, janayati ashu vairagyam jnanam chayadahoitukam. Real bhakti will bring in its wake vairagya, attachment. Who's a tagi vaishnava, nirapeksha vaishnava, nirupadi vaishnava, akinchina vaishnava, anishta, not anishta, but a mishtabhakta, like this, then there'd be some scope for that person using things of the world to spread Krishna consciousness. But if they become enamored by those things, and there are ideas that, why the, these, these grihastas, they've got all, they've got these houses of their own, and 
they should be giving it to us, you know, to me. And, of course, I'm going to use it all in Christian service. And, but the householders don't believe him because they wonder if half those things that he's buying are really needed in Christian service and so forth. So there, you know, there are things that happen like that it's, uh, that are unbecoming people in the renounced order of life. They, they should take the renounced order of life because of having attained some level of spiritual understanding, I, ideally. Prabhupada, of course, was generous and some of his sannyas disciples did not, um, were not able to maintain that. But, you know, he was experimenting and trying and overall what he did was obviously successful. So that's a long answer to your question. Does it help at all? Yes, Maharaj, I, you mostly presented the perspective from the individual point of view, from the point of view of an individual devotee and his or her development. But as far as the social sense, as far as the social perspective goes, uh, behaviors like that have to be seen in the terms of the wider society. And the perspective also has to be presented from the wider society perspective. For example, when sannyasis don't act according to sannyas, in society there is an erosion of that authority and there is an erosion of respect. And when we see that uh, devotees who are sudra by nature pretend to be brahmanas or kshatriyas and manage projects and run them into the ground, then things like Respecting those principles of sannyas, or respecting the principles of Vedanta, all of a sudden take on much different meaning and take much greater urgency. From the individual point of view, we can say a lot of things, but when we are dealing with a society and when we are dealing with You're talking about a society of devotees, society of devotees and a certain mission that, that society was set to accomplish, it seems like the perspective is different. Well, I don't know uh, uh, if I understand your point because I didn't mean to imply that it's all right for sannyasis to behave or for devotees who don't know how to think to write books. And that does happen. And I'm not, I mean, I'll tell you frankly, not everyone should read. How's that? That'll shock them. Not everyone should read or if they do, not by themselves, not without guidance, because all kind of people read. That's one of the reasons why the Vedas were only given to the Brahmins, people who could think, who knew how to think, how to read, how to understand. You know, you can you could get a book and about how to read a book, and how to read philosophy, and how to think philosophically, and so forth. But I don't even know if people who don't know how to do that will benefit that much from such a book. The kind of people that would read a book are probably people who already kind of know how to think, and and that's why they're they're reading a book because it's a good good thing to think about. And these days, it's a fact, but it's a huge problem. People don't know how to think. Devotees, they don't know how to think. They're not of a brahminical temperament. They read a book and they just pick out something here or there and get up behind a keyboard and and you know they're on the internet and nobody can see what they really like, their behavior or anything like that. And it's the greatest you know nemesis to spreading Krishna consciousness. People take sannyas and they're for the wrong reasons and, and, and they're not qualified. And So I don't disagree with you at all. In that sense, you know, you have to invoke some some sense of varnashram or something. Like you got this guy should be. And really, sattva is, is within varnashram, sattva 
pervades the system because when a person is engaged properly according to their psychology, whether they be a sudra, for example, or a vaisya or a kshatriya, that proper engagement begets sattva and clarity of thinking and hope for progress and so forth. So, so it's not in the interest of, of someone of a kind of like a, like say a sudra disposition to, we're supposed to be in, come to sattva, so I'll write books. I don't want to dig ditches. That's not the way in which he or she will become balanced and come to sattva and get clarity and, and be happy and make progress and so forth. So anyway, I, again, I'm not sure if I'm answering Chris, but I certainly don't disagree with you that sannyasis should... I mean, as I said, there's some scope for doing things that are less than traditional as a sannyasi and having a modern outlook, but they should be advanced and renounced and people should have that sense. I mean, there's nothing worse, in my opinion, than somebody's a sannyasi and so, you know, everybody's paying respect to him because he's a sannyasi, but he doesn't command any respect by his conduct or his speech which are the two things that they're supposed to command respect through their personal... So you just go through it and, you know, you you pay your obeisances and Jai Maharaj and the lecture was just like, you know, God, you know. You you have to be able to talk about Krishna in such a way that people's attention is captured. That's the whole idea. Just sit through it and wait for it to end and Jai Maharaj. I mean, this is is, uh, not good. That's kind of what you're talking about too, right? Yes, Mark. Basically, the, the point I was making that, or I was trying to, to get is that some of these things may be somewhat optional on the individual level, but when we're dealing with society, all of a sudden, they're not so much of an option anymore. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. On an individual level, we mm-hmm. may disregard the mm-hmm. activity in accordance with our proper varna, but when we're dealing with the social matter, all of a sudden, because we interact with others, mm, it becomes no, no longer an option. I agree, but in a, but again, in a, in a dynamic sense of varnashram. I mean, if you look at India in terms of varnashram, you either find there are thousands of castes, because what they're finding is that the four categories are given are just so overbroad and there's so much overlapping and so forth that there's this kind of Brahman and that kind of Brahman and this kind of Chhatriya and this kind of Sudra and this kind of... So, multi-classification. But at, but at any rate, in principle, you're right. From a societal point of view, I may be able to do, or someone may be able to do anything, but if the example of that is detrimental to the body of devotees at large, then it becomes mandatory for me to live in a spiritual society, to act in such a way that will be for their benefit, rather than to confuse them. So, what's the time now? It's about 20, 22, 12. So, any comment on that, or further questions? So, we'll stop there.